guys. Good to see you today. Um, I, I want to help you think about reality different today. Go with me on this, all right? My, my perception is that most people who believe in the concept of an afterlife think of reality as existing in, in what I will call two different worlds. There's the world that we live in now, existence as we know it now, right? And then there's this hope of an existence to come, often termed in things with words like a place called heaven, right? So there's two modes of existence that I think exist in most people's concept of reality who believe in the afterlife. A, a, a sense of this world and a sense of another world called heaven. Are you with me? Yeah? All right. Now, within this, it would seem that the way kind of reality is viewed is that existence now pales in comparison to the existence to come. Existence now is a speck on the radar. It is, it is a blip compared to an eternity that's going to come. This life in heaven, which is called eternal life. So we have life now, but there's a promise of, of a much greater life, an eternal life to come. Are you with me? And it would seem that most people who have this division between life now and eternal life, this, this division now between this world and the world we get to go to, that the separating mark or the doorway between the two worlds is death. This is betrayed at funerals all the time. You'll hear people kind of talk this way when they lose someone or you're at the funeral of someone you know or a friend, that they'll talk about how it's so hard to see them gone, but now they're in their blessed hope or now they're having eternal life. Now they're experiencing eternity with Jesus in some kind of way. Have you ever heard talk like this or maybe you've ever spoken this way yourself? Now what this entire model kind of does is it sets up the life now and the life yet to come, life now and eternal life through the doorway of death and what it does is this. If this represents life now, down here, and the goal is to get out of down there up to here in eternal life, this becomes a waiting game. It's a cosmic waiting room. If this is a blip on the timeline of what that represents, then what we do here is wait maybe be tested, depending on how, you, how your thinking goes, but it's all temporary. It's all something that almost starts to border on insignificance when you start to think about it in terms of what we wait for up there. Are you tracking? Now, if you think like this, I've got some good news for you. You're in good company. A lot of people think like this, especially a lot of Christians. But if you think like this, I've also got some bad news for you. Because the model I just described is not the way that the Bible views 
reality. It's certainly not the way the Old Testament thinkers did it. It's not the way that the Jews between the Old and the New Testament, that intertestamental period, you know what I mean? It's not the way that they wrote about it and thought about it and pictured it. And the New Testament being a thoroughly Old Testament book, it's certainly not the way the New Testament thought about it either. Instead, it pictured reality in a different way. And this is where I'd like you to go with me today. Rather than this world and that world, a better way in which they talked about it was this age and an age to come. Now, this reorients everything. Because instead of the point being, wait here until I get up here, It views life as a journey. It does more than that. It views history as a journey. A long timeline going back to the beginning over here that is progressing and going somewhere all the way down here. And they divide it into two major epochs or eons or ages or or time periods, however you want to put this, okay? It doesn't really matter. The age of now and the age to come. And instead of being divided by something called death or our own personal death, it's divided by something else instead. And it's a word that I want to teach you today. And the word is pronounced epiphany. Now, have you heard of this word before? We use it in English. It's actually a Greek word that's made its way into English usage. But for the Old Testament and the New Testament, these two major time periods or ages, if you will, are divided by this thing called epiphany. So what's an epiphany? Easiest kind of just wrap your head around definition is this. An epiphany is like when God shows up. It literally means something like manifestation or manifestation of God, which is just a big 50 cent way of saying when God shows up. See, when you look in the Old Testament and you look in those intertestamental thinkers and you look in the New Testament as well, they saw history as going somewhere, that God had a plan for this world and for time itself that's pointing towards something. But in this time, while much good exists and much love exists and and so many amazing things happen, there's corruption and evil and decay and hurt and suffering and yes, even death as well. But they looked forward to a day. A day that was going to come that was going to change everything. A day when God shows up. I don't think I got to even go much farther than that to go, what's that going to be? I mean, what happens when God shows up, right? And they would dream about this. That they would dream about this and talk about this and all that it would mean in, in, in relation to the nature of who God is. It would be a day when God would right all wrongs. It would be a day when God would vindicate his people. A day when God would carry justice 
out, a day when God would begin this amazing work of restoration, of bringing, bringing his whole created order back into what it was always supposed to be. It would be a day when God would finally deliver on every promise he has ever made. And when this epiphany would come, history and destiny as we knew it would change forever. So instead of a model that separates a world now from a world to get to up here through the doorway of death, they saw history as going somewhere separated by the coming of God and along with it, resurrection and restoration. And Matt, who doesn't want that? Are you with me? Guys, that's how I want you to think today. Because that's how the Old Testament and New Testament writers thought. That's how Jesus thought. And that's the context that they write into. Now, all school year long, we have been looking at these letters of an early follower of Jesus named Paul. Responsible for writing nearly half of the books that make up what we call the New Testament. And today, we're taking a special shift into these letters of Paul. Because of the 13 letters that Paul wrote, most of them are written to the same general group of people. And that same general group of people is, well, you. All right? Most of Paul's letters are written to churches, to gatherings and groups of believers in Christ written in, in, in a very general way to the masses. But out of those 13, there's three. There's three that aren't like the others. There's three that aren't written to y'all. <laughs> They're written to a specific you. Three of the letters are personal, highly personal written by an apostle to a brother in the faith, to a pastor, to a partner in ministry. Personal letters written to an individual when no one else is listening. What these personal letters are like, it's almost like we get to crack open Paul's diary. Have you ever done this? Have you ever found like your sister's diary and like then read it? No one Seriously? One? All right. I so weep for the rest of you because, oh my gosh, is there a better experience in this world than reading someone else's secrets, right? I highly encourage it if, if, if you can find the means. What we're doing today is actually that. We are getting a letter that Paul intended to write to an individual, but then some guys came around later and said, hey, let's mass produce this and print half a billion copies a year. All right, let's all read what's in Paul's journal, all right? That's what we do today, the personal letters. And the letter that I want to share with you today is a letter that he writes to someone who he was just like tight with, he was close with. It's someone that he calls a son in the faith. You ever had someone in your life? That they're not biologically related, but you're like, you're like a son to me. 
Are you like a dad to me or like a mom to me? Paul writes to this guy named Titus. And he calls him my son in the faith. And what the book or letter of Titus is about is it's situated within the idea of thinking about reality on the two-age timeline that I shared with you not too many moments ago. A little bit about this. Let me show you a map. All right? Here's what's going on as best as people can kind of piece together. Paul is dancing all throughout the Roman Empire. He's going from city to city, place to place, church to church, synagogue to synagogue. And what he's doing is he's sharing his insights into the Old Testament in light of Jesus' resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit and how for him that's changed everything. He's sharing how what he's discovered is that future age, that epiphany that the Jews were waiting for and hoping for and expecting has actually broken into history with this guy named Jesus from Nazareth who is nothing short than the hoped-for Messiah, the Son of God, the ultimate prophet and priest and king. And as Paul is going from place to place, he discovers something, and I think it's something that many of us have discovered as well, There is more to do in this world than can ever be done. And there is more to do in this world than any one person could ever hope to achieve alone. And so somehow, in some way, Paul ends up on this island right here. It's called Crete but he doesn't stay. It's really a bit unknown, all the circumstances behind it, but what we can say is this, he doesn't stay. Paul gets up here to a place called Neapolis, but he leaves his son in the faith right here on the island of Crete. And between you and me, there's worse places to be left, isn't there? Because Paul knew that The ministry was never about one guy alone. It's not about Paul. What Paul knew is that the kingdom of God was never about one local community alone. It's a good thing to think about for any church that gets so attached to its own local place or its own local leader in any way. And Paul leaves this guy named Titus, the son of the faith, on this island called Crete. He leaves him because Paul's got work to do, but there's still work to be done there. And Paul writes to this guy named Titus, the son in the faith, stay there in Crete and finish the job that I was unable to do. Finish helping the people see what it means not to live an idea of down here and up here, but help the people to see what it means to live as we're going there in light of Jesus' epiphany. Now look at what he writes to him. He says this, 
For the grace of God that brings salvation, it has appeared to all men. Do you see that word appeared? That word appeared is the Greek word, well, there it is, epiphany, all right? The grace of God that brings salvation has epiphanied to all men. When Jesus came, it was nothing short of an epiphany. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And you see the phrase, in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious epiphany of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I got a question for you today. When is the epiphany? Based on this passage, when is the epiphany? I'm putting you on the spot. Who says now? Who said now? Come on, be bold. Own your answer. All right, like four of you. Yeah, chickens. If you raised your hand now, you're absolutely right. Jesus has epiphanied. He has appeared. Do you see the past tense? We know the story. Jesus has come 2,000 years ago. God has broken into history. He has epiphanied. Now, how many of you said the epiphany is yet to come? Yeah, no one's raising your hand now, right? Well, it's too bad. Because if you raised your hand, you're also right. Because they're also waiting, waiting for a blessed hope, an epiphany to come. What's going on? What Paul came to discover is that one epiphany that had been hoped for throughout the age of now has come in two parts or has been split into two parts. An epiphany now and an epiphany yet to come. Okay, what does this mean? What does this work? Jesus and the New Testament writers and those early followers of him that, 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 that rooted this out would say it like this. That the future has broken into the present. That the age to come has busted in. That the hopes that everyone had as history and destiny were going somewhere have come in now almost ahead of time, almost too soon, completely unexpected in Jesus, the Messiah. The future is here. And yet you look around. Can I ask you? Do you see justice completely done? Do you see the totality of restoration of yourself or of creation? Do you see vindication and the promises that God has made coming true and they're full? And so somehow and in some way, though the epiphany has come, the epiphany is yet to come. The future has broken in now as we wait for the future to appear. All right, let's just take a moment to breathe and go. 
welcome to the timeline of the New Testament. Welcome to the reality of now. Living between the epiphanies. Simultaneously, in the current age and in the age to come, living between the epiphanies. In the now, as we wait for the future to come. And what Paul writes to this brother, this son in the faith named Titus is what it means to live as though eternity is today. What would that do to you? What would that do to you if you were to start living as though eternity began today. How would that change your thinking and your motivations? How would that change your priorities and the pace of your life? How would that change everything? If you were to live not in a time of waiting, but as though the promises of eternal life had broken in and were occurring today. Welcome to the letter of Titus. And it's this idea, this concept, this whole new way of thinking and living that Paul writes to this, this son in the faith saying, there's work to be done in Crete. They just don't get it yet encourage them and teach them and build them up in what it means to live eternally today. And for Paul, in this letter to Titus, it comes down to one word. One word that should describe what it looks like to live eternally today between the epiphanies. Want to see it? You see the epiphanies? Here's the word. Right in between. Godliness. Godliness. Godliness is what it means to start living eternally today. Because, I mean, go with me on this. All right, when you think like the future, you know, whichever scheme you think, whether like die and, and go to heaven and what you're going to be like there, or, or Jesus comes again in the second epiphany and the new heavens, new earth are ushered in and, and we're existing there. Okay, you got one of those in your mind? How do you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as morally corrupt in heaven? Or in the coming age? Do you think of yourself as broken? Fallen? Sinful? No, you don't. No, none of us do, right? Well, I think. <laughs> well, if eternity is now, if we're going to be changed, then what does it mean to start living like our then here today? What does it mean to start living? How will be then here today. And for Paul, this was huge. 
I mean, this this was a major thing. I have met so many followers of Christ who kind of get so drunk on this idea that, you know what, I'm saved by grace through faith, and it's not of myself, so I know it has nothing to do with me. Yeehaw, so who cares what I do? Who cares what my life is like? Who cares? Because you know what, Jesus saved me. Rock on, Jesus saved me, and it's absolutely true. But Jesus ain't done with me. He saved me for something. He, he, he's going to change me into something, and Jesus wants me. In his grace, by his blood, through his spirit, to start embracing the reality of who I'm going to be right here, today. Transformed. Godly. And I tell you, I have met so many people who so underestimate the impact and importance of their godliness in this overlapping of the ages. I, I was thinking about this, and I just kind of put a few like personality profiles together, the kind of ones that I kind of come in contact with. I mean, there's nothing magical here, but, but maybe it will connect with some of you. I'm just curious. You ever, you ever kind of feel like this, the no one knows person? You know, godliness doesn't really matter because no one knows. Godliness doesn't matter. They don't see what I'm doing. No one's going to know, Right? And if no one's going to know, who cares? So you kind of step back and you go, well, man, does God know? And is God preparing me for eternity today? If that doesn't sober you up in the dark corners of your life at night, I don't know what will. How about this? The it only affects me person Godliness doesn't really matter. I mean, okay, I know it's important, but does it really matter? It really only affects me, and I can deal with me. I can live with me. I can suck it up and deal with the pain. I can deal with me. Do you realize that everything you do has a ripple effect? Everything you do has an impact. Everything you do or don't do, everything you are influences the thinking and lives and dispositions of other people. It's like we all walk around with this like radiation coming off of us and you know, it, you can't help it. It just starts changing people. You, you know what I mean? The New Testament speaks strongly to this idea that it doesn't only affect me. That your godliness or ungodliness will rub off farther than you can ever see. Or how about this person? The zero impact person. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do. It's the Eeyore of the world, right? I have zero impact. You don't. My absolute favorite story. And I want to speak to every Eeyore in this room here today. 
true story of a missionary who dedicated the better part of his life to an indigenous group of people on a South Pacific island. It was the early 20th century. Over 40 years he spent on an island learning the culture, learning the language, building their trust, showing them his life and faith teaching them things that would help them in the course of their lives, teaching them the deeper things in the good news of what he discovered in Jesus. After 40 years, you know how many converts he had tallied up? Zero. The last recorded entry in his journal, the day before he died, on an island in the South Pacific, which straight up, if you're going to die, not a bad place, right? But the last recorded entry in his journal, my life was a waste. Have you ever felt like you gave your all with nothing to show for it? That you fought the good fight, you ran the good race, you sacrificed, you did what was right, you invested, you poured yourself in to nothing, to mist, with no result and no fruit. Go with me to the end of World War II. Years after this missionary died, the Marines are engaged in their island-hopping campaign through the South Pacific, and they come to this island. They don't know what kind of Japanese resistance they might find there. They don't know the disposition of the indigenous people. And they begin to come on the beach. Someone who, who is, the story was described, looks like a leader, a chieftain, starts coming out onto the beach with hundreds of the indigenous people behind him. And these Marines don't know what to expect. They don't know what's going on. They don't know what lies behind them. And this leader steps forward. And in a broken English that he picked up from the missionary, says this. We welcome you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. A people isolated from everything around them from a zero-impact missionary who impacted a nation that day. Never, ever, ever underestimate what God is doing through you, no matter what you ever see. Or maybe... You're like this. 
the I don't care person. Or maybe you're like this, the woe is me person. Or to put some tangibility to that, maybe you're like this, the I'm too old, too young, too stupid, too damaged kind of person. How could God use someone like me? God can use someone like you. And God does. Have you ever heard the term Cretan before? You know where it comes from? Crete, right? Titus, stay in Crete. Because God can even use a Cretan like you. Godliness matters. It's what it means to live eternity today. It is what it means to live eternal life now. Godliness matters. It's what it looks like to live between the epiphanies. And my prayer for you is that instead of viewing your life as a waiting room until you die, to get away from it all up here, that you instead come to realize that God is, so, that God is going somewhere. And he has got a role for you to play. And it will manifest itself in godliness. My prayer for you is that you start living your eternal life in him today. Guys, I'm going to invite you on your feet. Invite the band to come forward. And as they do, I want to read a passage to you from Titus one more time, the one that we saw. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And what does this grace of God and salvation do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. Hear that? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. But it also teaches us to do something as well, to live self-controlled, upright lives, and godly lives in this present age. Now, I'm not asking for your hands on this, but I just want to ask you. Have you been saying no to ungodliness? Have you been saying no to worldly passions? Have you been living self-controlled? Have you been living upright lives? Have you been characterized by the word godly? If the answer is no, you're in good company. And I'm right there with you. 
if your answer is no? Then I invite you to pray this with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Hear these other words from Titus. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. God knows that we're ungodly, but he saved us anyway. Not because of righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. And may you know the mercy and grace of God in your life. The forgiveness he offers, the sacrifice on the cross he paid. As horrific and gross as this sounds, may you know that you have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. The God who appeared and gave his life for you so you can be saved. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took a cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them. And he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins, all of them. Ungodly folk, come and partake. Welcome to the table of the Lord.